Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Thank you, Pastor Holly. Hi, everyone. How are you? It is so, so, so good to see you. I am very glad to be back, and uh, I, I think I'm through jet lag, at least most of it, but if I fall asleep halfway through this, I'm sorry. You'll understand. Uh, I am so thankful to be back, and uh, I will do my best over these next several weeks to kind of incorporate some of the stories uh, and pictures uh, from my trip there, because what I, would, what I really want to have happen is to connect not just my heart with what I experienced and who I met, but our hearts uh, together as a church uh, to our Free Methodist brothers and sisters down in Malawi. I just want to, just to kick things off, I, I did bring a few pictures just to show uh, this was our kind of our main traveling group. Uh, Bishop Matt Whitehead is there in the middle, and then on uh, next to me, and then on the very end are two of our Malawian superintendents. That's Superintendent Goodson and Superintendent Jafit. And then uh, the man in the kind of cream shirt is uh, uh, Bern Kalakusha, who serves as the principal or the head of the uh, Great Commission Bible School, the main school that trains our free Methodist pastors in Malawi. What an incredible group of people to be able to travel with, gracious, welcoming. They call Malawi the warm heart of Africa. They made sure that I knew that, and that is certainly what I experienced from these wonderful leaders as well. We didn't look like this most of the time. Most of the time, we looked like this, because <laughs> uh, in our in a formal settings, uh, we had to wear collars, which were not comfortable. Uh, I, yeah, not comfortable, but but important. And so we have the bishop there, you see, and uh, I'm there on the left. And then we just got to have pictures and meet several pastors. This is one of the pastors in the northern part of Malawi, a very rural area, and his name is Danny. And uh, so some other pastors and some pictures. Man, we took a lot of pictures. Just incredible leaders. You can see the building behind us there is the Free Methodist Church, or one of the main Free Methodist churches in the northern part of the country. And I took a picture with this guy here on the right because he was very proud to be the secretary of the conference, the one who kept notes. I'm also the secretary for our conference here, so we kind of had like a little secretary <laughs> brotherhood there. I called him Mr. Secretary. He called me Mr. Secretary. It was great. Uh, <laughs> And then, as you can see, uh, the church is in the back there. And then we had these kind of things, which for us was maybe a bit uncomfortable, but very important. Uh, they gave us seats of honor. I feel like we kind of look like the Power Rangers there with different colors, uh, different colored, colored collars. But uh, it was wonderful to, to be together uh, there. So I will show more uh, pictures and tell more stories, some really powerful stuff that the Lord is doing in a very, very difficult part of the world. Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world, and they just do not have much. But their joy is incredible. I, I would, we got to sit up front, and I just was unashamed. Every once in a while, they would just start breaking out into song. Like if they were sitting right here, someone would start singing. They'd all stand up and start singing and dancing. I just took my phone out and started recording. It was incredible. We have a lot to learn from them in that regard, and so um, ho hopefully I'll be able to tell some stories there and, uh, and show some pictures and videos. But thank you for allowing me to go. I want to say thank you to Pastor Mark and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Holly uh, for preaching these last several weeks here, and uh, thank you to Pastor Scott and Nikki for really leading a lot of things, and I know that there were a whole bunch of technical issues on several weeks, and so uh, thank you for that. I am so thankful 
for the Lord meeting us wherever we are. Amen? Amen. All right, time for a nap. Just kidding. <laughs> well, today uh, we're going to start a brand new series, and it's a series that I'm looking forward to. Uh, so over the next several week, weeks, we are going to look at the biblical character of David, of King David. Uh, King David, I don't know how much you know about David. We know, most of us know, you know, a, a good amount about David, but King David was one of, if not the most important king for the nation of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. David, as we'll see, is both a flawed person, uh, and yet he had this incredible relationship with God that sets the stage for a lot of, of learning about what faith looks like, and uh, it ultimately sets the stage for the coming of Jesus. Jesus comes to us through the line of King David. Pastor Holly and I had a great discussion this last week in our, in our recorded podcast about how we can relate with biblically flawed characters, right? Maybe we have a tendency to idolize or, uh, or hero worship characters in the Bible, but David is a flawed, he's a person just like you and me, amen? <laughs> so that's one of the reasons I think that's very helpful in how we can relate to him. He is a very important biblical figure. Not only is his story important, but even as we've looked over the last several summers, many of the Psalms that we've looked at uh, uh, are authored by David. His importance is not only found in the Old Testament, but all the way into the New Testament as well, uh, where he's identified as the ancestor of Jesus and a forerunner of the Messiah. Language that we hear about David often comes more around the time of Advent. David was the youngest son in the family of Jesse. Uh, this family was part of the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes uh, made up, that made up the nation of Israel. The family lived in Bethlehem, and, uh, which was just south of Jerusalem. Some of this is just, we know this, but it's important to get a kind of a, a general picture of who David is. As a boy, we know that David took care of his father's sheep. He was a shepherd and a fairly aggressive shepherd, right? He uh, often risking his life as uh, to kill attacking bears and lions. We also know that he was an accomplished musician, that he had the ability, he was a really good harpist. And that later he gets hired by King Saul to play the harp to calm King Saul down, which is incredibly ironic because it's likely David's presence that really riles him up because David, <laughs> David is the one who's anointed to become king after King Saul. So go figure. Uh, but uh, David's story is so fascinating. There's so many layers to this man and his relationship with God. And we're going to explore some of those over the next several weeks together. And hopefully we'll be challenged and encouraged in our faith as we see God through the life of this person. We're going to start today by looking at a very important mindset that I think sets the stage for the whole story of David and his life. So we're going to kick things off by looking at a story in 1 Samuel 17, and it's one that we all know very well and yet is so very powerful. It's the story of David and Goliath. It's a story about the Israelites and the Philistines. So before we read this story, one of the things I thought that might be helpful for us that give us a little bit of context about the Philistines themselves. But if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 17, if you have your Bibles or on your devices, that's great. So the Philistines, the, the, in, this, in this story, the, the primary, uh, the, the opposition here to the army of Israel, the Philistines were a small yet aggressive people situated south of Jerusalem. They had no single king. 
uh, each of the Philistines, each of their cities was, was ruled by an individual lord. They were aggressive, they were militaristic, and they had the advantage of superior weapons. This is actually really fascinating to know. The Philistines actually had a monopoly on iron in the region, meaning that they were much more well-armed compared to other armies who didn't have the availability of iron or as much iron uh, to make really sophisticated weapons. So usually maybe kings or generals would carry iron sharpened swords, but it was unlikely in this time that that the majority of armies had access to this kind of weaponry. Now, this really helps us in understanding this, this uh, conflict between Israel and, and, and the Philistines here. It gives some meaning to today's story. So with that in mind, we, we look at the text for today. Uh, not only do we know that the Israelites are outmatched in terms of weapons, but in this story, they meet a man named Goliath, a giant and very intimidating, right? So 1 Samuel 17, we're going to read 1 through 11. I'm going to do my best with some of these words here. But again, if I mess it up, I'm just going to blame it on jet lag, all right? Uh, The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and and camped between Sioch and Judah and then this other place right there. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the Valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposing hills uh, with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. Okay, so just so we're keeping in mind, if iron is a precious metal that not a lot of people have, not a lot of armies have, bronze is even better, right? This is a, uh, an experienced soldier who has been in lots of battles and has won and has all this significant Uh, armor. He also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as as the weaver's beam. Tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds, his armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. So Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. What a crazy story. (laughs) What an intimidating figure. Uh, What a crazy situation. So here we find the army of God's people and their king, King Saul, it says, terrified and deeply shaken. And I don't know about you, but I likely would be terrified and deeply shaken too if this was our situation. We know that they were outmatched as an army in a number of ways, one of which was knowing that the opposing army had much better weapons. And then this giant came out asking for the battle to be decided with an individual face-off. I have always kind of wondered, why, why didn't the Israelites just attack? Like, why, why wait here? Well, we know that the Israelites are probably thinking to themselves, they're, these are the Philistines. They have, they're militaristic. They have lots of better weapons. If we fight as an army, we're likely to lose. And so then maybe they consider this. Oh, maybe we can have someone who will beat Goliath, and that way we can win. But it's likely, I mean, look at this guy. It's likely that we're going to lose too. 
So, what do you do, right? You have to choose which way do we want to try to lose. <laughs> but maybe there's this lingering little bit of hope uh, for the Israelites. Uh, and, and that's why they, they uh, were considering what to do here. But Goliath came out day after day for weeks with the same challenge for Saul's army. Israel needed a champion, but Goliath was banking on the fact that no one could beat him. So the Israelites did what was normal. They looked to their king, King Saul. They looked to him for two reasons. Number one, he's the king. He's the leader. He's their commander. He's their ruler. But second, and this might sound weird, but it was true, King Saul was actually the tallest man in Israel. Uh, When he was chosen as king, one of the reasons that he was chosen, it says, is because he was handsome and he was head and shoulders higher, taller than everybody else was, which is pretty funny. I'm sure there's better ways to choose your king but this was part of how they chose Saul, right? So when they're looking out at, the, at everyone and they say, who gives us the best chance? If we're going to fight Saul, who gives us the best chance? Well, it's our king because he's our king and he's the biggest among us. They put all their hope in their earthly king and they waited and they waited and they waited for King Saul to come out of his tent, but he never did. I love the Bible. This is so great because it sets up so perfectly for God to do something significant because the crazy part of the story is that the one guy who should figure prominently at this story at this point, the one guy who should come to the rescue is absent. He's hiding and he's in his tent. (laughs) Saul in the story is conspicuously missing, nowhere to be found. His credibility is slipping away every day that he is hiding. And as his credibility waned, the army's hope began to die. And one major takeaway from this is the stalemate between the armies of Israel and Philistine. It really illustrates the fact that God never wanted Israel to have an earthly king. (laughs) Because look what earthly kings do. God wanted Israel to look to him as their king, the the one who would always be faithful and always come to their rescue. But the, the people thought they knew better. How many times when we're facing something significant or overwhelming or challenging where we might say, sorry, we, I think we got this, God. I know what to do. You, you can just hang out over there. Sorry, God, you're not going to do things the way that I want to, so I'm going to try this first on my own. God knew that humanity had a trust problem from the very beginning. All the way back then, they had a trust problem, and sometimes we do today as well. God wanted to be their king, to have the people trust in him alone first. To have that be your first inclination, your first intuition, your first instinct. But often it's not. See, earlier in the story of the Old Testament, God is clear that he had a very specific purpose for Israel. Early on in the story, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless you. But not just you, not just your family, not just your nation. I'm going to bless the entire world. One will come from you through which the entire world will be blessed. God wanted Israel to be unlike any other nation that existed on earth. He wanted them to put on display the reign and the rule of God and what that looked like. So that others would not credit the kings of Israel for their successes, but the God of Israel. Amen? (laughs) Is that true of our life? Is that true of the way that we live out our faith? Would someone look at us and say, oh man, 
that Kyle's amazing, right? Or will they look at, that someone, at your life and say, oh, wow, <laughs> Kyle is a servant of the Most High, and God is amazing. But that didn't happen. The people wanted a king, so God gave them Saul. And that's working out real well, isn't it? <laughs> the Philistines didn't fear Israel uh, because rather than having a powerful God, they got a king hiding in his tent. And Goliath stood there and shouted, why are you all coming out to fight? He called, I'm the Philistine champion. But get this, don't miss this, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come out here and fight me. You are only servants of Saul. It's a very telling statement. And this is where God steps in in a very powerful way. Through the story of a shepherd boy who will one day become King David. So while Goliath is daily calling out to Saul's army, at this point, David's young. We think about 15. About 15-year-old David, someone who just got his learner's permit and couldn't even drive himself to the battlefield, he shows up with a care package from home. Maybe he's all excited because maybe he gets to drive the cart on his own at 15. Who knows? He's like, I get to go. And like any curious young teenager, he makes his way to the front lines because something is going on and he wants to see. Pastor Holly and I were joking about this, which is like, we've got teenagers, so it's like, oh, come on, everyone. I've watched the Marvel movies. I know how to fight. Let's do this thing, right? <laughs> so David shows up. He's all excited. He's like, let's just Thanos snap these people. And, uh, and, 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 and he, he hears Goliath's taunts. It's the same speech that Goliath gives day after day. It's been going on for months, and David responds, but instead of being dismayed and terrified like everybody else, David is offended. I love this. He's offended. The response from Saul and the Israelites just doesn't compute with David. You see, David sees things differently, and he sees things in a way that you and I should see things as well. He hears that Saul is looking for a champion to fight Goliath, and he begins to ask some questions. And even the questions that 15-year-old David asks allow us to see that he saw this whole situation differently. He saw with a clarity that no one else in Saul's army had. David's heart is different from those around him. And the text tells us that David asks someone standing near him, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Do you see it? Do you see the perspective that he has? Even his questions assumed something about how God works. His question may have been reframing to the people around him. Goliath is calling them out as, as just a servants, an army of Saul. But that's not what David sees. David sees them. He understands their identity as the people of God. So when Goliath is calling out the, the army here, he's not just calling out individuals. He's calling out God, and David sees this. David just doesn't understand why you're approaching it this way. Saul, uh, these men of war, uh, they look at this teenage boy and say, what we see is a nine and a half foot tall giant with extraordinary military experience and better weapons. Our king, who we expected to go and fight this giant, is nowhere to be found. So I think we see this clearly, and it looks like we'll lose. And then David says again, who is this pagan Philistine? Who is, in some, some translations it says, who is this uncircumcised 
person? Who is this person who is outside of the covenant of God? (laughs) That he should defy the armies of the living God. Hopefully you notice that, that he calls them the armies of the living God. And remember, Goliath is saying, you're only the servants of Saul. Nobody saw it the way that David did. This perspective is powerful. Amen? (laughs) David was different because he trusted and depended on God. He had a clarity in this moment to know who he really was and who was on the throne. And it changed everything. Perspective matters. Our perspective about who God is, who we are, the place that God holds in our life, and what God does when we face difficulties and struggles and and circumstances that feel overwhelming. Our perspective matters. And it's important that we see ourselves the way David sees what's going on here. Who does he think he is? And why in the world hasn't anyone done something about this? We can have confidence because God is king. Incredible. So the word gets back to King Saul that someone is actually talking about going down there and fighting this giant. And there's someone who's raised their hand and said, I want to go. I will do it. And so he calls David in. And when David walks in, Saul is incredibly disappointed. (laughs) Oh, you're no soldier. You have no battle scars. No weapons or experience. You're just a boy. Saul learns that he's a shepherd and that he's the younger brother of three of his soldiers that are in the army. And Saul sits down and says, David, you can leave. But then David says, wait, before you let me go, uh, I, you, you under, I understand I'm just a shepherd, that I have no military experience, that I don't have any weapons. But then he says, I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I have done this uh, to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Mic drop, period, exclamation point. Whoa! (laughs) Is this the kind of perspective that we have as we walk day by day in faith with the Lord? There was absolutely no confusion for David. He was extraordinarily clear. And and his clarity was simply this, that the enemy of God's people is an enemy of God, and God is going to do something about it. David's assumption was that the man or the woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear. Even when there may be something to legitimately that, that, you, that might cause some legitimate fear. Because the Lord, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is faithful and will provide. It's incredible when you think about this in the context of this story and what David's talking about. This is true for us today as well. What is your perspective when you face hard things? When you face suffering, when you uh, would say something feels overwhelming to you and you don't see a way forward, what is your perspective? How does God figure into that picture? On my trip over these last couple of weeks, this was a powerful realization for me. Many of the pastors that would come to our meetings were walking for days. They come with one set of clothes (laughs) and they're there for a couple of days. They don't have much to eat. We actually, one of the things that I had uh, that was really fascinating to me was this thing called sema, which is kind of a, a staple there, and it's a corn mash. It's kind of sticky. You eat it with your fingers. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. It's a stomach filler. 
and I had it once. And I was like, thanks, no more. <laughs> but the, uh, one of the things that is fascinating is that they, uh, they minister in some very difficult situations, and yet they always have this perspective that God will provide no matter what. It was eye-opening and inspiring to my faith. I hope it can be inspiring to us today as well. So David said, hey, King Saul, pick me. Let me do what no man in your army is willing to do. Let me do what you are unwilling to do. This was the posture that God desired for his entire nation, for his people from the very beginning, to put on, dis- and it's put on display by a 15-year-old shepherd boy who just got his learner's permit. <laughs> The people wanted a king, and at first they got Saul. But through a boy who would become their second king, David, God begins to rewrite the story of the people of Israel and continues the story of his rescue from the very beginning to this very moment here and now as we sit in this room. So 15-year-old, clear-eyed, confident, and yet in some strange way, humble before the Lord David, makes his way down to the valley. We know what happens. In, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, it says, David says, You come at me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies and the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Let me tell you what's about to happen. Today the Lord will defeat you, and I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with the sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. This is a 15-year-old boy saying this to Goliath, and and that's exactly what happened. In Psalm 25, David writes this, O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced, and do not let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one trusts in you, Uh, will ever be disgraced, but disgrace comes on those who try to deceive others. Isn't that powerful? What an incredible thing to think. Just imagine waking up tomorrow with this story in mind of David's perspective and his faith in God. Imagine waking up tomorrow with this story in mind and making that same declaration for yourself before you get out of bed. Imagine driving to work saying, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. No matter what I'm facing, good or bad, I wonder if David whispered this under his breath a thousand times. Oh, my Lord, my God, in you I place my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And in those moments when it looks like the world has turned against you and that Goliath will in fact take you down, maybe that's the perfect moment for us to whisper, in you, my Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Amen? Amen. Worship team, would you come on back up? Despite what we know about David's flaws, as the the story goes on, David's words and deeds set him apart in this story and I think show us a particular perspective that he has throughout his entire life and throughout his entire reign as king, pointing us to the power of trusting God as king no matter how big or small the battle may be, that God is there to guide us, to protect us, and will provide for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a powerful story. It is a story. I think it's a seminal story in the Old Testament in the fact that uh, it shows us a perspective that David has that's a theme throughout the rest of his life. I 
theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. That no matter what it is we face, you are with us. You are providing for us. You have a plan of rescue for us as individuals, as a community, as an entire uh, human race. That you have a plan and you will see it through. We can have faith in that. We can trust in that. So help us do that. God, I'm just uh, wondering and and, uh, being reflective this morning on what it is that might be uh, significant challenges in our lives. Sometimes we hold on to the fear that comes along with not knowing what's next or what to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that maybe we can come and loosen our grip on some of those things, to hold open-handed to you things that we face that are hard, the questions we have but we don't know the answers to, relationships that are difficult or breaking down, problems that affect all areas of our life. God, I pray that we can be a people like David who come to you and say, we want to trust in you, knowing that you're with us and that you provide. We really believe that. It doesn't matter if those, that's a small problem or a problem worldwide. You are God and King. We thank you. Continue to move deeply, speak deeply to us in these next few moments. As we celebrate your ultimate rescue of us, as we remember what you did on the cross for us, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the rescue plan that starts at the very beginning of the Old Testament comes in the form of a loving God who gave his life for each of us. To forgive our sins. To gracefully invite us to new life, purpose, and joy. And so we remember and celebrate that this morning. We thank you, Jesus.